Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Uh, glad you're here today. If you're joining us online, special welcome to you as well. Um, this week, uh, houses were torn apart, and uh, families were divided over this. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you happen to somehow not be around the internet this week, um, you missed this. This is the debate that was going around on everyone's Facebook feeds and major news outlets. The question is, is do you hear Laurel? Or do you hear Yanni? Yeah. What do you hear? Yeah. Yanni? Yeah. Laurel? Yeah. Uh, what you just experienced ripped families apart this week. Total respect for individuals were lost because they didn't hear what the other person had heard. It's this incredible, incredible power that these kind of moments have. They're divisive, right? And the simple question, floating around on Facebook, CBS, ABC, NBC, uh, Good Morning America, and every other major news outlet, government agencies. I mean, it was just crazy. I was sweeping across. And it was a simple question. What word do you hear? And it was one of those kind of questions that's, while somewhat silly, um, it, it kind of gives us this insight. There's sometimes you have a question, and then there's sometimes that questions have you, right? Where you're just so passionately gripped by it. I mean, in our household, I heard one thing, and I was right, and my wife heard the other thing, and she was wrong. It was very clear. And I, I like the fact that I was like, actually, what I hear is technically what the word is, because that came from a vocabulary.com recording of the word laurel. That's actually what that word is. I know it may not sound like that to you, blame the internet and the Google, it, or your ears, but the reality is it said laurel. And so in our household, we had it, but this question had us too, because you're asking other people, what, well, what did you hear? Because you're trying to build this consensus that for those who didn't hear laurel, that there is an internet conspiracy against you, right? And um, this month, we've been in the midst of a series where we're dealing with questions that you've asked, questions that you have. This isn't a series where I stepped up and like next month where we're going to press into this issue around purpose and how to live your life with purpose. Um, it's not like that where I'm kind of in the driver's seat and I'm working through passages and putting a series together. This series has been you. You drove this series. So if you don't like it, it's your fault, okay? <laughs> you ask the questions and I've worked through those. And what I've done in order to kind of navigate the next two weeks is I've grouped it. Uh, this week's a little easier. A lot of the questions that we got were around questions about faith, like what is the Christian faith? What does it mean to believe in God? How do you know you're a Christian? All of those kind of general questions around Christianity. And the, another group of questions around doubts. And so what I want to do is this week, I want to press into this question around faith. What is Christianity? How do you know if you're a Christian? All those things about Christianity. And then next week, I want to come up, and it'll be a little different in that I'm going to kind of tackle a series of different questions around doubt. So question about science and faith. Can they coexist? Are they, are they kind of like warriors with each other? Or can they complement one another? Or the philosophical question about suffering that I did not get to last week. What I spoke on last week was about suffering for those people in the midst of suffering who want to look up to heaven and say, why? And I, last week's message was about that moment when we cry out why in the midst of suffering, not why suffering happens. So next week, I want to deal with those different doubts that we, that we all have, that your friends and neighbors have. And, um, and so next week, we'll kind of have a, a little bit of a Q&A segment where I'm going to be walking through different questions. But thankfully, the questions you asked about faith uh, all came out of a conversation that 2,000 years ago, 
um, Jesus had with someone else who was asking some of the same questions as you were. These questions about faith and what it is and what it isn't. And because Jesus comes on the scene and he causes a bit of a stir, who he is causes people to start to second-guess themselves and start to, to question themselves and whether or not they really understand the Christian faith and what Judaism's really about. And this kind of pressure of these questions that had them causes one of them to, to come to Jesus and ask. And that conversation, while 2,000 years ago, uh, were very similar to the same questions you were asking through our poll last month through the app. And uh, this story, this conversation is found in the book of John. And um, as Jason referenced earlier, it's in the message notes for you. Uh, you'll have the entire passage. Uh, the book of John is unique. I've, I've kind of told you a little bit, if you've been here before, that there are four biographies about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is the most different of the four. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written around roughly the same time period. They're all written to, to a, pr primarily an audience that are not Christians. They, have, they haven't really heard anything about Christianity. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are just kind of giving you the details. They're jumping in, and they're like, here's Christianity. Well, one of the disciples, John, who lives the longest, he's the last one of the original 12 disciples to die. He lives to an extraordinarily old age because when he meets Jesus, he's the youngest of them all. And uh, John has this distinct kind of perspective. John outlives the first generation of Christians, and he lives into the second generation of Christians. So you have people who become Christians, whose lives are transformed, and now they're raising kids, and their kids are becoming Christians. And if you're a parent, you know this. Your kids have questions that you don't have answers to. They think about things that you didn't think about when you were young, right? And so these questions, if you work with kids or if you have kids, you know that kids are full of questions. And the second generation of Christians have questions that the first generation of Christians never had. And so John writes his book to address some of the questions that this second generation of Christians have that they've never been able to ask. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written to a different audience, and so they, there's just a natural kind of disconnect for them. And so John pulls out things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke never talked about. John uh, writes a lot of his book around some kind of core themes, but one of the, the tendencies in the book of John um, is to deal with conversations Jesus has with other people that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't talk about. If you were here last week, I talked about this conversation Jesus had with Lazarus, which is not found in any of the original three. And you can go back and listen to last week's message to understand why John put that one in there. This one um, is a conversation that's not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke either. In fact, John 3, John 4, John 5, and John 6 are filled with conversations Jesus have with individuals that are not found in the original three biographies. It's only found in the fourth. And this guy that Jesus uh, engages with conversationally is coming into this moment with him with the same questions that you pose through the app and that your friends and neighbors have about the Christian faith too. In John 3, 1, it says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish, Jewish ruling council. Uh, we're introduced to this guy very succinctly, and what you need to know about him is Nicodemus is a really powerful man. He's very influential. He's very um, affluent. He's very educated. Uh, we don't have a Jewish ruling council. Uh, that technical name for that council would have been the Sanhedrin. Uh, we don't have a government structure like a first century Jewish government, but the Sanhedrin was essentially the Senate and the Supreme Court put together. 
They're an incredibly powerful uh, ruling body. They make decisions, all things religious. Uh, they are the elite of the elite. They're the most educated. They're the most powerful of the day. And so when one of the Sanhedrin um, is walking through the street, everyone notices it. They, they look different. They talk different. They thought different. They were a different kind of in every category kind of guy. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which puts him at the top. So within the religious structure of the day, the Pharisees were the most educated of the educated. These were the Harvard PhDs. These were the Oxford professors. These were the brilliant of the brilliant. And Nicodemus, who's, who's used to people responding to him when he makes a conversation, when he asks a question, when, when he makes a decision, finds himself, after encountering Jesus in John chapter 2 as part of a crowd, has some burning questions that he wants to ask. And so we find that in verse 2 that he comes to Jesus at night. And why does he come tonight? Because he comes at night because here's a powerful man who has some, some really burning internal doubts and questions, but he doesn't want anyone to know. I mean, he, he's got a reputation to maintain. He doesn't, want, he doesn't want people to know that he's asking questions about faith. And so he comes to Jesus at night, and he says, Rabbi, which is really significant, because Jesus, for, for Nicodemus to call Jesus Rabbi is a significant sign of respect, right? A rabbi is a, a teacher. It's a religious title. Um, the same way a pastor would be a religious title. And for Jesus to be called Rabbi by one of these um, individuals was intentional. Nicodemus is saying to Jesus, look, there's something different about you. And even though you don't have the credentials and the degrees and you don't have the education and the influence I have, I still consider you a rabbi. You have something I don't have. And to even go further, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So he comes to Jesus and he's like, look, I, you're, you're not like us. I sit around the room regularly with the most powerful, most educated religious people in our land, and none of them can do what you do. I, I don't have a box for what I've seen you do, Jesus. And Jesus engages him in a conversation. Jesus responds, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And the word born again can also mean born from above. The word again in the Greek can go two different ways. Um, Nicodemus responds, verse 4, How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Like Nicodemus says, Jesus, you're awesome. Jesus, you're incredible. And Jesus is like, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, that's nasty. Like, I don't even have time to think about what you just said, Jesus. Nicodemus is confused. He's really confused. He's like, don't you know who I am? I'm here asking a question, and you, you tell me I need to be born again? That's really strange, Jesus. So you hear that if you're confused. Good. Nicodemus was too. Um, Jesus answered, very truly. And the word very truly, Jesus is going to use this a lot. And very truly is like religiously true. It's, you know, it's when people are like, no, I'm being really serious. And Jesus is like elevating what he's saying to this like higher plane. There's like everyday truth talk. And then there's like, no, this is like very, very important. 
you need to hear this. So he's going very truly, and he'll, he'll say this throughout. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is everyone born of the spirit. And then Nicodemus is like, what? He's like, how can this be? In fact, is what he says. But uh, if he was a, an American, he'd be like, huh? Like Nicodemus is like, dude, we are not clearly communicating with each other because I don't have a clue of what you just said. Have you ever been in a moment where you're sitting like that? Maybe it's in a doctor's office or maybe it's with a mechanic and they're like, uh, yeah, your uh, flat flux capacitor has gone out. We're going to have to replace that. Uh, it's a little bit of a difficulty getting it shipped over from McFly Industries. So, you know, I mean, like, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, you're going way over my head. And this is, it's not that it's like intellectually not um, able to be comprehended. It's that it's insider language. Jesus is using very, very intentionally brilliant insider language. And uh, Nicodemus is like, I, I don't get this. I don't understand this. And Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? He's like, it's a little bit of a burn. Not really, but it, he's like, Nicodemus, like you're the smartest person in Israel, and you don't get this? And he says, very truly, again, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we've seen, but you, still you people do not accept our testimony. Most likely what's happened is that Jesus has some of his followers. We know John is there because John's recording the conversation for us. Um, most likely, uh, Jesus, with his disciples, Nicodemus probably brings one or two of his postgraduate researchers with him too. Okay, So his doctors in training are probably behind Nicodemus. And so Jesus is speaking kind of plural at this point to them. Um, he's like, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And notice how it's kind of set apart. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. This conversation is very confusing. And if it's confusing for you, great. It was confusing for Nicodemus too. Jesus recognizes who's having this conversation with him. He's a brilliant, intellectual deeply rooted in the religious tradition, to, just to kind of further drive home a Pharisee and what the, the idea of a Pharisee in first century Jerusalem, uh, books had not been invented yet. The idea of a book is a fairly recent invention. The way um, knowledge was transmitted, the typical kind of like, it wasn't a Kindle or an iPad or even a book, it was scrolls. So you would have these big scrolls bound up and inside of the scrolls would be uh, the, the scripture text, right, for the Old Testament. A Pharisee um, would spend their entire life memorizing and studying the Old Testament scriptures. And the rumor was that a really good Pharisee could, could have a scroll placed in front of them, could have a nail brought and a nail driven into the scroll, and they could pick up the scroll, look at about roughly where the nail stopped, and could tell you what book in the Old Testament it stopped on, a really good Pharisee, a really educated Pharisee, it was rumored could tell you what sentence it was probably touching, and the best, the brightest, could tell you what word. That's how deeply educated these people were in the religious text. They had memorized it. They breathed this stuff. And so Jesus is like, you're Israel's teacher. How are you missing this? 
And Nicodemus doesn't get it. Uh, just recently, I came across this incredible arc, um, article uh, about a missing person case last year into this year, um, a 22-year-old named Rebecca Martinez. Uh, Rebecca Martinez, uh, Martinez was uh, reported missing November 17th by her mother. She said, Mom, I'm going out to go take care of some stuff, and then uh, she doesn't come back. And doesn't come back, calls, can't get her own cell phone, no ability to reach her at all. Her daughter disappears. She calls the police department, reports her missing. Uh, the police start their investigation. They begin to look into it. Uh, conversations, they're trying to, to kind of reach out to her on the phone. Like, she's, she's gone. Can you imagine your 22-year-old is missing? And uh, so the mom's naturally uh, freaked out. And as the investigation climbs, a local newspaper does an article uh, talking about the 35 missing people in Humboldt County, California, because it's become an epidemic. There are a lot of people missing in this county. And so there's this subtext, like is someone taking them? What's going on? And in the midst of the story, the North Coast Journal publishes this article. It goes out into the community and a phone call is made. And they said, hey, we've we found your daughter. And uh, she was no longer going by the name of Rebecca. She was going by the name of Becca. What was interesting is where they found her. You see, while her mom is freaking out, every single week, there's a television show called The Bachelor. And The Bachelor is, if you've ever seen it, right, there's this man who's The Bachelor. And this happens to be the season where he's this uh, very handsome race car driver, former race car driver, and all of these women are kind of, I don't know, clustered up in this house. I don't understand the show, do not understand it. Um, and they're all trying to vie for this man's affection and attention, and I'm sure probably the large cash that comes attached with that. And, and so all the entire month of January, Becca survives. In fact, one of the most dramatic episodes in all of the season of Bachelor that year was the date that she has with him where she confesses to this former race car driver who's 36 years old, um, she confesses to him her real age, which is 22. And it's this dramatic moment. The Washington Post covers it. It's one of the dramatic moments. And it's Rebecca, their missing daughter. She's on their television every single week. And they don't know it. They live with stress, anxiety, because their daughter cannot be found. And she's right underneath their nose. They just haven't tuned to the right channel to see it. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you're brilliant. You're Israel's teacher. You know everything there is to know about the Jewish faith. It's right underneath your nose. You just haven't tuned into it. See, if you read this text with the, the knowledge that Nicodemus would have brought to it, what you discover is that there are about four very distinct references to, Jew, to deep, philosophically, PhD-level Jewish theology. And what I want to do is I want to take this very complicated conversation and I want to visually give it to you. Because it's so confusing that when John writes this, he actually stops at where I stopped. And then in verse 16, 17, in a few passages that follow, 
John then goes and summarizes the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus because he realizes this is so insider language oriented, most people will miss it. And so before we get to John's uh, summary, I want to give you a, a visual summary to really kind of drive it home. So Nicodemus is a really good um, Pharisee. He understands that there is a design. God had an intention when he created the world. God's design was that there would be peace, there would be purpose, there would be joy, there would be love. Like there would be these aspects, relationships that started together, would end together. They, they wouldn't fall apart halfway through. There was a design that God had for Nicodemus and that, that God had for us too. We were made to have a purpose in life. We were made to experience lasting trusting relationships, like all these things were intended by God. But what ends up happening is that something happened. And Nicodemus would say, would agree that the world is broken. But not only the world is broken, that he's broken, that you and I are broken, that something, there is a disconnect between the purpose and the love and the joy and the peace that we were meant to experience. There is a disconnect between what we call everyday life, isn't there? That we experience that disconnect. We experience that detachment from God's design. And this is why Nicodemus is there. Nicodemus, with all of his religious knowledge, knows something's missing. Something's not present. He's like, there's got to be more because I have everything and yet still something is missing. There's got to be more. The salary doesn't satisfy, the title doesn't satisfy, the bigger car doesn't satisfy, the larger house doesn't satisfy, that relationship and the relationship before that and the relationship before that doesn't satisfy. If I drink, I feel good, but then I wake up the next morning and, and it's empty again. It's that we all have, because of this brokenness, we all chase after trying to figure out how do we get back to this place. We all pursue those things. And they're not all bad things. For Nicodemus, he was pursuing religion to satisfy. He was a faithful church attender. He was someone who really, really knew and understood the Bible and what the Bible meant. Like, he has all of that going for him, and yet he still feels like there's something missing. It's, it's like the religious, uh, kind of a good image of that is uh, when you were in third grade and the teacher would say, hey, I'm going to go down to the office for a second. And the teacher had her rules or his rules. They would be on the board and everyone would know, right? But the moment the teacher would leave the room, what did you do? Let me tell you what I did. I systematically broke every rule on the teacher's wall. I started talking. We would throw things. We were silly, right? Why? Because the teacher, when she left the room, there was no longer any kind of authority figure present and I felt free to do whatever I wanted. This is essentially what religion is. It does not satisfy the ultimate level. It's the teacher in the room. It's the cop who's standing there beside the speed limit. I obey the speed limit when there's a cop car parked beside it. We all do, right? And this is religion. And Nicodemus recognizes something's lacking, something's missing. And so he goes to Jesus saying, Jesus, I hope you know what it is because I haven't found it and I've got everything. I'm at the top of my career. I'm at the top of my game. And yet, I have this nagging sense every day that while I have everything, there must still be one thing missing, or at least something missing. And, and essentially, what has caused that is this idea that none of us would disagree with, that there is this plague of selfishness that we have. 
I thought I was not selfish, and then I got married. Then I thought I'd gotten over it, and then I had a child, and I like sleep, right? I mean, there's just every area and every stage of life constantly reveals that there is further and further levels of selfishness towards others, and that there is disobedience towards God's design. There is this sense that I am constantly kind of being pulled away from what God intended. And, and oftentimes, when we think about disobedience to God, we'll think about the bad things or like the Ten Commandments. But God's design wasn't just that we would not do bad things. God's design, remember, was that we would love, that there would be joy, that there would be purpose. And so the disconnect is also found in the way that we don't achieve and live and pursue the good things. I mean, if I could just get the golden rule, I'd probably be set. But I can't do the golden rule when I drive down the road. And so this disconnect, the ancients had a word for that, the religious leaders had a word for it, and they called it sin. But it was essentially selfishness towards others, disobedience towards God, and it was this fact that I always preferred my way versus any other way. And Nicodemus would have said that word is sin, that's what we call it in our, our Jewish faith. And so what happens with this disconnect, whether it's that we're pursuing all these other good things or whether we're trying to find escape, that ultimately we're trying to move away from our brokenness. Which is why Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And when Jesus is standing there, Nicodemus walks up and he says, Jesus, I see that you do these marvelous things. Jesus jumps straight to the reason Nicodemus is there. He's like, Nicodemus, in the religious subtext of everything that he says, I have good news, Nicodemus. This would later be uh, turned into a Greek word, an English word from a Greek concept for good news that we would call it the gospel. And the gospel is simply is, is just an English way of saying the good news. It's what Nicodemus was about to hear. When Jesus starts into these really deep concepts where he talks about being born of spirit and water, that's a really weird phrase. That comes from the book of Ezekiel. You and I may not know what comes from the book of Ezekiel. We may not even be able to find the book of Ezekiel. But Nicodemus had memorized the entire book. And spirit and water is a dominant theme in the book of Ezekiel about this good news, this thing that God's going to do. What religious people had picked up on was that doing good things or trying to do good things did not change who I was on the inside. Who I am on the inside is broken, even if the broken part of me is digging deeper and trying hard to be a better fill in the blank. And so Jesus begins this conversation with Nicodemus. He's like spirit in water, and water, and he's pointing to this profound Old Testament promise that you would be made new, you'd be made fresh, that the religion tried to change from the outside in, that what God was promising is he was going to give his people a new heart. He was going to change them from the inside out. That is the good news, that Nicodemus, you don't have to, you don't have to try anymore. God wants to do something in you. It's not about trying to please him with all these things that you try to fill your life with. Uh, this past week, I heard this incredible story of a man named James Harrison he is an Australian man. For the last 60 years, he has given blood every two weeks. The reason he's done so is that inside of James's blood is a specific antibody called antibody D. And antibody D is this incredibly rare antibody that his body naturally produced. And what researchers found is that this antibody buried inside of his blood cells, uh, floating around in his plasma, was... Uh, the exact cure they were looking for for um, hemolytic, hemolytic disease of the newborn, or HDN. And what HDN essentially is that the mother's body is producing, has a blood type that's um, different.
different from the blood type of the baby. But there's something, while that may be a common occurrence, the body of the mother um, sees the baby's blood type as something to be attacked. The immune system turns on it and begins to attack the baby as if the baby is a sickness. Which means that babies, at this point, thousands of babies in 1967 when this began, uh, were dying through miscarriage or being born with brain damage. Thousands of babies. And inside of James's blood is the uh, anti-D um, thing that they were looking for. And so for every two weeks, he would show up and his blood would be taken and that anti-D would be extracted from his blood and it would be given to babies and to mothers throughout Australia. This past week, he gave his last, he's now in his 80s, um, he gave his last donation. And um, this is a picture of him, um, this, this incredible man who has done this. And this is what's, these are some of the babies that have been saved because of his blood donations. But what's incredible about James's story is that over the last, uh, in the last almost 60 years of what he has done, um, 2.4 million babies have been saved in Australia. 2.4 million. Because in Australia, 17% of the babies, 17% of pregnancies are HDN qualified. And this man's blood, single-handedly, has saved 2.4 million people. And when I read that story, I was just gripped by this picture of what Nicodemus and Jesus are having a conversation about. That when Jesus says to him, this other vague reference, remember I told you, hey, pay attention, son of man has been pointed out. It's different. It stands alone. Because son of man, that's a concept that comes from the book of Daniel. Again, a book that you and I probably would not know about, but something that Ezekiel and Daniel would have both been books that Nicodemus would have memorized. The Son of Man is a deep theological concept that comes from the book. It's one of the central themes of the book of Daniel. And he says, the Son of Man, a Savior, that's going to come and make you new again. And then he says, and as the Son of Man is lifted up. And what Jesus is pointing to is this reference of the cross and what's going to happen to him. And as I read that story about James, I realized that in some ways, James embodied what Jesus came to do. That in his perfection, that in his blood, even figuratively speaking, something in his blood had the antibodies to fight the thing inside of us that was broken. And that through his blood, through his death on the cross, and through his resurrection, we could have new life. We could be made new again. That broken piece inside of us could be made new. And this idea of being new and being restored, and that through that, this we would be able to go back into that place of God's design that Nicodemus could have purpose, he could have joy, he could have peace, that you and I could have purpose in our life, that we could have joy and love irregardless of our circumstances. No matter if we're in a dead-end job or we feel like we're in a dead-end place of life, it does not matter because what Jesus was promising, the good news, was that we could have life in the midst of no matter where we find ourselves. Because the good news was that God was restoring us to the original design, that he was making us new again. This incredible thing that Jesus was doing. And he's having this conversation in these veiled religious concepts with Nicodemus. But the question that Nicodemus wants to know is how? How do you go from here to here to there? And Nicodemus hears the answer in that conversation when Jesus says that so as the Son of Man is lifted up, just as the snake was lifted up in the desert, so anyone who believes in the Son of Man would have eternal life. He makes 
another reference to an Old Testament story. This time in Numbers 21, chapter, chapter 21, verse 9. There's this story about a snake. But what is Nicodemus here? What is Jesus saying? He's like, Nicodemus, the way you move from here to here through here is another step, the one step that you're called, and it's faith. Now, here's the challenge. Faith is a word that we all have an idea of. But what matters is that Jesus is defining faith in context. Nicodemus would have said to Jesus, I have faith, Jesus. I'm a Pharisee for crying out loud. I'm part of the Sanhedrin. I'm a really powerful man. I know religious things. Of course I have a faith. And Jesus is saying, your faith, faith is not an intellectual system. It's not a thought thing. It's not a, even a belief in some kind of like, I know it kind of thing. It's a different, different idea. Faith does not mean intellectual knowledge. And what does he do? He points Nicodemus to the story that tells the story of what faith is. You see, faith is, is synonymous. When Jesus uses the word belief and faith, it's synonymous with the word trust. I got a picture of this in college. Um, one of my first jobs ever was I was a bank teller. And I remember distinctly walking into the bank vault because that's kind of a cool experience, right? Unless you have a gun and you're a getaway car, you typically don't get to walk into a bank vault. And, and so I got to walk in the bank vault and get paid for it. And so I'm in standing in the midst of the bank vault, and I'm like, where's my money? Because I bank here. W which one's mine? And they're like, uh, it doesn't work like that. I'm like, you better show me my $17. <laughs> you know? They're like, that's not how this works. Um, we don't actually have your money here. I'm like, well, I want my money. Put my money here. Seven, I had to work hard for that $17. And um, they're like, no, um, your, your money is, is, is kind of out there. And then they begin to talk. And I'm like, I, I don't know what that means. I want my money back, right? Because I don't know where my money is. And at the end of the day, here's what I had to do. I had to trust the bank. I had to trust that the bank took my money and had it somewhere. Essentially, I had to have faith in the bank that I was thinking with. That even though I couldn't see my money, even though I couldn't walk into the vault and pull it out, and point to it, I had to have faith that they had it. And really, faith and trust in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about belief, is synonymous with one another. Belief, trust, faith, they're all synonymous. And, and many of us would feel like faith isn't something that we do very well, but we do this every single day. Um, we do it when we get in the car. The only thing that separates you from imminent death, being hit by another car, is that you believe that someone you have trust that this person's going to obey that white and yellow line. That they're going to do their part and you're going to do your part. I mean, faith is riddled and woven into every aspect of life. I mean, when you stood at the altar and they looked so pretty and you said, I do. Well, you don't know everything. You don't know what that person's going to be. You don't know all the aspects about them. You don't know if they're going to keep that hair. You don't know if they're going to gain weight. You don't know if they're going to become jerks. You don't know if they're going to sit around and play video games all day. Like, you have no idea. You stand at that altar, all fancy looking, with all people surrounded by you, and you make a bold faith statement. You say, I do. I will. And in that moment, what you're saying is, I trust you. I have faith that no matter what, you're going to hold up your end. And you're going to have faith that no matter what, I'll hold up my end too. Relationships are rooted in faith. 
It's rooted in trust. And this is what Jesus is trying to point out, is that this step isn't some intellectual knowledge. It's really about trust. And what is the story that he says? The story captures that. It's the snake in the desert. I don't have time to go into the whole story of the snake in the desert, but here's the thing that you need to know. Israel, they're in the process. They've just come out of Egypt from um, being enslaved there. They're wandering through the desert. Uh, there's a pretty dark period in their history while wandering through the desert. They're griping, complaining. Uh, they're, they're wishing they could go back to being slaves instead of what God has for them. Um, they run into a, I don't know what you call a group of snakes, um, but whatever those happen to be, of sand vipers. The sand vipers, nasty little devils, literally look like devils, and they are biting the Israelites in the hill, and that's causing them to get sick, and they're dying. They begin to pray, God, Please help us. God says to Moses, here's what I want you to do. Um, I, I want this to be an act of trust in me that I'm going to do something because they seem to have a trust problem with me that I'm going to finish. I'm going to take them to the promised land like I told them I will. So he tells Moses, make a bronze snake like the snake that's been biting them. Take a pole and put the bronze snake on top of the pole and then put it in the center of the camp. So this really large pole with a snake on top is stuck right in the middle of the ground, and they say, whenever you're bitten, the promise is you get to the snake and look at it. If you just go look at the snake, you'll be healed, which sounds really simple, right? Now, I can guarantee you, if I got bit by a sand viper walking through some like corridor of that desert, I would not stop by Duncan's on the way to the snake, right? I wouldn't make reservations. If I got bit by a sand viper and I truly trusted that God was doing something, then I would climb over people. I would dig a hole underneath them. I would do whatever I could to go and see that snake because I trust that if I can see the snake, I'll be transformed and healed. This is the story that Jesus references, is that the snake up in the desert, kind of random side fact, just if you're ever on Jeopardy, you can give me a piece of it. That story from Numbers 21, that image of the snake on the pole is where the medical industry, this is an exact carryover from Numbers 21. The reason you see a snake wrapped around a pole um, with medical doctors is this story from Numbers 21. Just a random side fact. Like I said, 10%, 20%, 50% Jeopardy. I'll take it all. Do what your conscience tells you to do. Okay, And, and so this, this idea of the story is what Jesus is trying to point out. He's like, look, trust me. Trust in what I have done on the cross. Trust that what I have sacrificed will cover you before God. That this is the good news, that if you place your trust in him and what he has done, that no matter when that moment comes, that when we stand before God and faith becomes sight, right? when we blink our last tear, but that when we see him, that when he says, why do I let you in? Like, what's, like, I trust Jesus. He's already worked it out. And that he walks through the doors. And that we walk in on the trust that he has already worked it out. But it doesn't have to just wait till then. There's freedom. There's forgiveness that we can have now, today, present in this place, in this life. And that this is why when John, he um, what I visually have given to you, this is why John writes these words at the end. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John's like, I just want people to get the essence of what Jesus just said. It's the good news that God, because of his love, made a way where there was no way. And that whoever believes in that way, Jesus can have everlasting life. And one of the questions that you asked 
um, was around this idea of, okay, how do I become a Christian? How, what does it look like for faith? And I want to give you one more image before we wrap up today. Um, it's one I've given you before that kind of briefly summarizes the Christian life. If you are a baseball fan or breathe, then you recognize this as a baseball diamond, right? And in the Christian faith, to use this, first base is about how you know you're a Christian. The first base that the way you know you're a Christian is that in those three circles that you've put your trust, that you've said to God privately, God, I know that you died for me on a cross and I'm sorry for those disobedient things, for the selfishness, for the way that I've pursued all of these other things. I know that there are good news, that there is hope for me. There's forgiveness, there's freedom. And I put my trust in what you have done, knowing that because of what you have done, I can rest in that. And then that simple confession to God in your own language, your way, takes you to first base. Now, the challenge, God knew this, is that this is, a very, this is a very invisible thing. It's a very private thing between you and God. And so it, he, he recognizes that in this life, what we need is a group of people who are saying, I want to live on mission together. I want to I live my life and have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, and self-control. I want all those things flowing out of my life. And so the way that we do that is that we need a group of people around us to support us, right? Um, it's a whole, you lose a lot more weight if you're part of a workout group, right? If you work out together, you're probably better than if you're going to the gym together. My wife works out every single week, and she comes home, and she's like all sweaty and been all ripped up because somebody in this room kind of just whips her. And then I go to the gym, and I come back, and I barely sweated, and it was because I did it. I was driving me at the gym, and I'm like, oh, this is, oh, you better back this down, Chris. This is just, Whew, you're going to pull something, right? And, and Jenny's, getting, Jenny's getting like ripped all up and, and losing weight. And I'm like, I'm going to get there. It's going to take three to five years, right? And, and it's, God knows that we need um, a group of people. And so it, there's this invisible thing, and then there's the visible step, and that's the show step, and that's baptism. In fact, right after service today, if you want to hang out, I'm going to answer questions about baptism because there's some people who want to know more about baptism. And this is where the invisible comes visible, that Jesus creates this concept of baptism and that that's our visible way of showing what's invisibly happened on the inside. And then there's this final step and it's the growth step. So the knowing and the showing, but then there's also a life where we're meant to be growing. Where those the idea of purpose and love and joy and peace and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all these things I'm referencing from another passage. Um, those are meant to mark the Christian life. And the way we do that is this group of people that we have shown that we are agreeing with them, we, we then begin to grow with them. And here at um, Encounter Church, one of the ways that we've created this step, well, this is a meeting today, right after, right? So I'm going to put 11.45. At 12.15 today, um, and here, we're going to kick off a 10-week class called the 112. And the 10-week class at the 112 is going to be incredible. Um, I became a Christian 17 years ago, and that 17 years of my journey um, and what I've learned through that, I've condensed down into a 10-week how to live out the Christian faith. And, um, and so it's free. I'd love for you to sign up. If you want to do that, 12:15 today, you can do that. Um, and this is the answer. Some of you would ask, like, how, how do I grow in my faith? How do I move in my faith? What does that look like? This is it. Step one, know that you're a Christian. You pray to God. You recognize this three-circle thing I drew out. Then you show it in baptism. And I recognize there's a lot of questions around that because maybe you were baptized as a baby. I'm going to answer all those questions. 
and then you grow in your faith. And that is, in essence, I've answered like three or four of your questions, and I'm drilling through it, but here's the last question before you leave. That um, all that's great. How do you live it out? Because some of you maybe are in this room and you're a Christian, you're like, okay, I got all that, but you know what I'm struggling with? I'm struggling with guilt. I'm struggling with some of the things I've done in the past, and even though I've prayed to God and asked for forgiveness, and I've done that, and I've even been baptized, I'm still struggling with it. Then let me tell you a story, and we're done. Uh, so one of the things that's part of my job that you don't see is that I, I sometimes travel and speak. In fact, this week, I'm getting on an airplane, traveling somewhere, and I'm going to be doing an all-day training session. And, um, and so because of that, I have been able to build up airline points and have status. And two weeks ago, my little girl and I were flying to go see family. And, uh, and on the way back, we, um, I got an alert that says, you've been upgraded. And I was like, oh, great. And so because Ella's traveling, we were both upgraded. And we get to the airport, and uh, you know, they board first class. And my daughter, with all the swagger that a six-year-old has, marches right on. And when she gets onto a plane, we sit down. And here's a picture of what we were upgraded to. See, this plane is uh, one of those international planes. And so their first class is a pod. And so Ella's sitting in one of those pods. She's by herself. There's a large flat screen television that you cannot see that pops out if you want to see it. Um, the chair that she's in then can turn into a bed and she can have complete privacy. Um, like This is like the nicest seat ever. But I'm sitting there. I'm on the other side. She's right there doing her diva thing. And people are walking by, old people, young people. And they're like, what? Who is that? Like, what does she have? Like, you know, they're like, you see it. Their families are talking about this because they're like, how did that little girl get in that seat? Like, that's an incredible seat. There's like a workstation. I mean, plugs. I mean, it's ridiculous what that seat had. And the reason that little girl got there, she all snuggled up and got her little first class blanket and pulled it up. The reason she could do all of that was because her daddy had status. And because her daddy had status, she was covered by that status too. Because she was with me. And the status that I had earned through, she didn't have to suffer through delayed flights. She didn't have to sweat and sprint through airports. She didn't have to spend the night in hotels because her flight got canceled. She doesn't know the hours that I've had to be away from my family. All she gets is the payout and the benefit. She didn't have to suffer and she never had to pay because she had my status. And that when Jesus said, it is finished, it is done, and for those who've put their trust in him, you are covered with his status too. You may have not felt like you have earned it because you could not. And the response that you have is just to accept it. And with the swagger that my little six-year-old girl walked through, beat her little scan card, and got into 4F, that same swagger knowing that you are covered by the status of your father and what he has done on the cross, that is also over you and your life too. That's how you walk in forgiveness. That's how you walk in freedom. That's how you walk not plagued by guilt because what he has done has erased all that you have done.